We are in week two of our series that we're calling Dawn. Dawn means the first appearance of light. I was talking to someone the other day and I was telling them the name of our series. And I said, yeah, the name of our series is Dawn. And uh, they said, oh, like the soap. And I said, no, not like the soap, like the dawning of the greatest hope coming into the world, that kind of dawn. And they're like, oh, that makes more sense. Um, Isaiah 9-2 says, to those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That light is Christ, and he is the hope of the world. This series is all about discovering and rediscovering him. And last week we saw John talked about the meaning of life. And John's claim is that the meaning of life is found in Jesus Christ. And what his claim is, is that all the world is searching for the meaning of life and searching everywhere. And eventually, we will find our rest in Jesus Christ, or we will set for a phony. And that phony will leave us frustrated and won't deliver for us. That's the claim that John is making in this Gospel of John. Well, what if you come to the conclusion that there is no God? I think the only logical conclusion then is that there is no meaning in life. Um, my, f- my favorite atheist is Nietzsche. And he's my favorite because I think he's the most honest about what the implications are if there is no God. And what he says is that if there is no God, then there's no meaning in life, there's no purpose in life, there's no value in life, and there's no real way to determine what is right or wrong. Basically, what he's saying is, listen, in the end, it doesn't really matter because in the end, it end up turning into fertilizer. But the good news here that John is giving us is saying that there is a creator. There is an author of life. And that's what we're looking at today. This is the name of the sermon today, is the author of life. And we're in the same verses that we were in last week. That's how packed these verses are with meaning. And so we're going to stay here uh, this week also. So this is John 1, verses 1 through 5. John 1, verses 1 through 5, says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word is talking about Jesus. That means Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is introducing us to the author of life, And he's also introducing to us the situation that we are in. And here's what John tells us. He's going to tell us right here. He's going to tell us about the creator. He's going to tell us about the problem of evil. And he's going to tell us about the divine solution. The creator, the problem of evil, and the divine solution. So first, the creator. Many people that I talk to, have this belief that we have science 
and science has the facts, but they also have this sense that there's a God. And they have been told that those two things don't go together. And what I want to tell you is that those two things do go together, can go together, and should go together. I also want you to realize that at some point, science stops answering your questions. Where do we go when that happens? There's a, a, a brilliant philosopher, and, and he says, the solution to the riddle of life is found outside of space and time. The solution to the riddle of life is found outside of space and time. And Christianity is saying, yes, that's correct. And the solution outside of space and time is a creator. But how do we find him? Listen to this. Isaiah 64, 1 and 2 says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and make your name known. John is saying that's happened. God has torn open the heavens and come down, and he's come down in Jesus Christ. The claim here is that Jesus is the very author of life. He made it all. And sometimes you hear Christians arguing about Genesis 1. And some will say Genesis 1 is a literal six-day creation. And others will say Genesis 1 is poetic. Scripture is 100% perfectly right. And Genesis 1 is poetic. Each day is representing a period of time. And whenever I hear people making that argument, I say, okay, fine. But listen, you're missing the point of Genesis 1. Genesis 1's point is that there is a creator. There is an author of life. And it is the God of the Old and the New Testament. And John is saying, is Jesus. He's this cosmically majestic creator with the Father and the Spirit. John is saying that Jesus is unmatched in every way. There is nothing above him. John is saying that he, listen, he's saying he's the very definition of perfection. He isn't beautiful. He's the definition of beauty. He isn't just. He's the definition of justice. He isn't good. He's the definition of goodness. And he isn't a loving God. He's the very definition of love. He isn't a path to happiness. He is the actual source of happiness. And he isn't a path to find meaning, purpose, and value. He is meaning, purpose, and value. It's all in him. And here's what we've got to realize. Whatever we go to to measure what the highest form of justice is, what the highest form of whatever is good, what the highest form of love is, that we have made our God. And that we have made our authority. The word authority comes from the word author. So I have a question for you. Where do you go to decide what is right or wrong? Where's your moral compass coming from? What I want you to see is that your view 
of right and wrong is more shaped by the culture that you are in than you realize. You look, we look now and we say how wrong slavery was. But at the time, it was a cultural norm. It wasn't considered something that was wrong. What are you wrong about today that your great-grandchildren are going to cringe at? The problem of slavery was a problem of authority. God would never approve of that. If you told someone the Holocaust was wrong, they could ask based on whose authority. And you could say, well, it's just wrong. It's obvious that it was wrong. And then Hitler would say, well, I think you're wrong. I think it's right. We need an authority to tell us what is right or wrong or else we all can just come to the conclusion of what right or wrong is, and then we have chaos, then we have the Holocaust. If you are in a room full of people, and they had all read this book, and one person says, this is what I think this book means, and the other person says, no, this is what it means, and the other person said, no, this is what it means. And then the doors open up, and the author of the book comes in and says, this is what it means. You would say, oh, okay. We will continue to argue over what is right or wrong until the author of life walks in, until he tears open the heavens and comes down and says, this is how we ought to live. The author of life has the authority over life. The creator is the one who designed us, so he, know, he knows what is best in the way we ought to live. See, our problem really is that what we want is a Stepford God. You know, you know what a Stepford God is? If you've seen the movie Stepford Wives, you know, so in the movie The Stepford Wives, these, these husbands make uh, these robot women, and they never disagree with them. You guys are like, yeah, I want that. Um, let me just say this. What you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I think it's true. I think you want to step for God. I think we do. You don't want to submit to him. So then my question for you is, what are you submitting to? Because we're always submitting to something. If you're chasing comfort, and God says, live a certain way that's uncomfortable... If we have a step for God, then all we have to do is re-engineer him and reprogram, and then we get to do what we want. But that's not the kind of God we're talking about here. We're talking about the author of life. <laughs> we're going to God always. And he's telling us to live a certain way, but we're trying to rationalize in our mind how we can live a different way. Um, okay. What do you do if God asks you to live a way that you don't really want to live? Um, sometimes I'm here, I'll hear people say, God is telling me to do something that I know that God wouldn't tell them to do. Like, God's telling me that I should leave my spouse. Well, I mean, there's situations where, yes, that ought to happen, but th that's like me saying, uh, hey, 
God's telling me right now to give me your car keys, but you know what? Don't worry about it because I got a bike and I'm just going to give you my bike and then I'll take your car. That's fine. Um, we're rationalizing in order to get what we want. We convince ourselves that God wants us just to do something that really is what we want to do. Look, I know we don't always want to listen to God. I don't always want to listen to God. I'm reading the Bible, and I'm like, ugh, I don't want to do this. But that's what he's saying. Many people say, I don't think I could be, I don't think I could be a Christian because there's some things in the Bible that I find very offensive. Um, and some of it, we need to really understand what the Bible's saying. But, but really, here's what you're saying when you say this. When you say, I don't think I could believe in a God that would say something like this in the Bible because it's offensive. What you're saying is that if there is a God, he's not going to disagree with me. Now, if we all pooled all of our ideas together in this room, we're going to have some disagreements. So we got to believe that if there is a God, a living God who who has made all of this, that he's going to say some things that maybe are different than our ideas. Do you want to know how you've met the author of life? I mean, really, really met him? How are you treating him? Are you willing to submit to him? I mean, I know, listen, we're not going to be perfect. Please don't hear me as saying that. But what is your posture towards God? Are you wanting to submit to him? All right. When we meet him, we reorient our lives around him. Okay? So now the question is, you say, okay, that's fine. How do we know then if we can trust him? You listen, you, you say, okay, I hear what you're saying. But look at the way the world is. It's a mess. You're telling me that God is the creator. And look at the evil in this world. So what do I do with that? How can I trust a God that that is good? If God is good, how is there so much evil in this world? It's a common question. This is our second point, the problem of evil. So first I want you to think, when it says in our text, darkness, this means to be surrounded by evil. It means that darkness, darkness means that this is all that's wrong in the world. So now we got to go to understand the problem of evil. We got to go back to the beginning to understand what went wrong and to understand how evil came into the world. So in the beginning, God created everything and it was good. And God created humanity with free will. Before everything went wrong, God created humanity with free will. And humanity said, okay, they had the ability to choose God or not choose God, reject God or not reject God. And here's what happened. Humanity rejected God, rejected his authority, and said, okay, I am God's creation, but I am putting myself in the position of creator, and I am de-elevating God to the position of creation. Humanity chose to turn away from God, reject him, and rebel against him. 
Man tried to claim the authority that belonged to God alone. It's like this. It's like you think of a child walking into the White House and claiming authority. It's laughable, but it's also, it's also evil. There's a pride that says, I know best how to run things better than God does. A sickness, and here's what happened. As soon as this happens, as soon as mankind does this, this evil pours out into the world and affects everything. A sickness falls over all the world and all the people in it. This is known as the fall, and here's what happened. Humanity then became enslaved to a world filled with darkness and enslaved, they became enslaved to a will that was set against God. God did not create the problem. We did. God did not make evil. Evil is a rejection of God and a rejection of what is good. It is a perversion of what is good. Sometimes with kids, uh, they'll want you to draw a picture for them. And so you draw this picture, and it's good. Well, maybe when I draw it, maybe yours aren't good, but mine are good. Uh, you, you draw this picture, and it's good. And then the kid's like, can I have a crayon? And then they're like, and they mess it all up. And then they look at you like you've created this problem. When we know that it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't me. My drawings are good. Um, Now, that's really a bad example, but it helps helps communicate the point. The brokenness of the world is not our doing. It's not God's doing. It's our doing. We're like the kid. Listen, we are the cause of the problem. Yet, at the same time, we are suffering because of the sickness. We are victims. We are the cause, yet simultaneously we are the victims. G.K., someone asked G.K. Chesterton, what is wrong with the world today? And he said, I am. Yet, at the same time, There are things happening in your life, you are suffering, and it is not your fault that you are suffering. Maybe maybe some of it is, maybe you made a really bad decision and you're suffering because of it, that happens, but also there are things that are happening in your life that are not your fault. This is a result of being in a fallen world. It's an easy example. Take, for example, natural disasters. When when the hurricane when one of the hurricanes hit in New York, somebody said to me, uh, man, God must be punishing them. And I'm like, I don't know that that's what's happening. I think this is probably just a result of us in a fallen world. And I want you to know this. You aren't made to experience this. You aren't made to experience suffering. You aren't made to lose a child. You don't know how to handle it because you're not made for it. You're not made for this world the way that it is. And if you come to the conclusion that there is no God, then you can't really say that death and suffering is wrong because all it is is a random collection of atoms and particles that have formed and made this circumstance happen. But if there is a God, then the question is, can he do something about the situation that we are in? 
Can he do something about the problem of evil? And the church is here to say all throughout the world, yes, and that there is a divine solution. That's our third point, the divine solution. It says, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. What I want you to see is that this divine solution is impossible if God is not three in one. One God, three persons. Unless we have a triune God, this solution is impossible. The problem of evil cannot be fixed. In fact, our desires for justice and for love don't make any sense if God is not three in one. Remember we said about Jesus, that he's the definition of justice and he's the definition of what love is. Well, if God is love, what we know about love is that it is giving, it is selfless, it is for another. Love requires community. And if God is perfect, then God has to be in community because if he's not, then he can't have a full, complete expression of love if he's by himself before the foundation of the world. So God has always been love, which means he has always had a perfect expression of love, which means he has to be in community with himself. I'm not saying God has multiple personalities. Don't go telling people that there's this preacher that's saying God has multiple personalities. What I'm saying is God is one in three. One in three persons. You say, well, I don't see how this text is saying that. Show me how the text is saying it. That's a good question. You should always be asking that question. Here's what it says. It says, in the beginning was the word. The word means Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, so the word was God, Jesus was God, and then he was with God. So there's two gods. No. And the key to understanding this is understanding the Greek word for with. The Greek word is pros, and pros implies oneness, it implies completeness, it Im implies unity, and it implies intimacy, and it implies intercourse, actually, where two become one. Two become one, pros. Two persons, one. There's a divine magnetism between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And they are, desire each other so much that they're one. They have such a complete love for each other that the three are one. Think about this relationship like the strongest of magnets. The, the s magnets that are stronger than you could imagine, they're, they are completely attracted to each other, and they're so attracted to each other that they look like one. And the world has ever, only ever known them as one until there was a reason for them to separate. And what I want you to consider here is that this, what I'm about to tell you, this is the deepest desire of your soul. And this divine solution 
salvation will require great sacrifice and great selflessness by God. And in fact, this is the greatest display of love the world has ever seen or ever will see. In fact, for all of eternity, we're going to be gazing at this moment in history and be in awe of it. So remember, God is perfectly just and perfectly loving all at the same time. He's the very definition of love and justice, and he loves us with all of his heart, and he desires justice with all of his being. He cannot allow evil to survive. He must execute justice to those who reject his authority. So that creates a problem for us. So now the divine solution is the cross. The God of love came into the world. Humanity rejected him. Humanity spit on him. And humanity murdered the author of life. The greatest tragedy and the greatest crime we will ever know. Yet, the greatest display of love we will ever know. Okay, here we go. Are you ready for this? God being perfectly just has this raging desire to execute justice towards those who have sinned against him. I mean, we murdered the author of life. But he has this unrelenting desire to display this love for us. So the glory of the cross is that through it, God satisfies both his raging desire for justice and his unrelenting desire to love us. This is how he remains perfect and has us. So here's how. On the cross... The pros of God, remember the pros, the connectness of God, the magnet, it was ripped apart. And Jesus hung on the cross alone. And in that moment, here's what happened. All of the raging desire that God has for justice, all of his, are you ready for this? Here it comes. All of the wrath of God is poured out to Christ on the cross. And Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet it was the plan. Because here's what happens. I hope you're seeing this. By that happening, he absorbs all justice that is required. And now all we get is this love of, that God has for us being poured upon us over and over and over again, and we're drowning in this deep love. Here's what I want you to feel. Jesus was swallowed up by death. Yet, the divine love this magnetism that the Father and Son have for Christ, the Father and the Spirit have for Christ, this, this magnet rips a hole in the grave and rips a hole in death and cuts right through it. And he breaks it apart. A love so strong that it rips open death. 
And now, if we will just have faith, death is now only something we pass through. It's only a shadow that we simply step over. And if you'll just have faith in this, then here's what happens. The Spirit of God dwells inside of us. And what the Spirit of God is doing is with this divine attraction for the Son and the Father are crying out to the Son and the Father, drawing us to see the beauty and the majesty of Christ and causing us to say, this really is the author of life and I'm giving my life to him. I'm his. I'm gonna live the way he's calling me to live because I see that he's died in my place. The Spirit is within us, urging us to go to Him. And if we just will go to Him, we'll discover a love that is from outside of this world that has ripped open the heavens and come down to claim us as His. To to soak us in a love that was accomplished through the cross. That's the cosmic majesty of Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe that this is true. You tell us that your word to us is revelation, and so we pray that you would reveal to us the mystery of the cross, but you would also make very clear to us this love that you have for us that is from outside of this world this love that has ripped open the heavens and come down to claim us, to make us yours, God. So you, the author of we want help us want you more. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.